Our scripture today is from Psalm 133. How good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. It is like precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down on the collar of his robe. It is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion, for there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. This is the word of the Lord. Howdy. Uh, I'm, my, my name is Matt Sickle. I'm an elder here. Thank you, Jeannie, for reading that. Um, good to see all of you. T today's scripture is, uh, was Psalm 133 in its entirety. Uh, what Jeannie just read was all three verses of it. It is not the shortest psalm, though. That distinction belongs to Psalm 117, which is only two verses. What is distinctive about Psalm 133, as I'm sure you will all remember, is that I have already preached about this psalm from this pulpit on April 8th of 2018. So I'll just pause briefly now to give you all a moment to skim back in your sermon notes, and we can pick up from there. I see no notes. That's okay. I don't take them either. Um, anyway, uh, as I was saying, Psalm 133 is a very short little poem. Uh, but as those of us who have been gathering for the community Bible study upstairs uh, have learned, short little bits of scripture like this are actually a pretty great length to examine in a nice, rich, uh, unhurried sort of way. They're long enough to chew on, to consider the context, and to ask good questions. When I last spoke about these verses, our congregation was just about to discuss the hiring of a new pastor named Andrew Chung. Uh, and the lectionary scriptures for the day pointed us toward Psalm 133 and encouraged us toward unity. Again, now we find ourselves at the beginning of a, a smaller new chapter in our congregation's life with a renewed focus on conversation and education for everyone. And when I saw good old Psalm 133 listed in Andrew's schedule for the Psalms that make our hearts sing series, I wondered, what do these little verses have to tell us now? So let's dive in. Although it is a short psalm, it does come with a brief introduction. Psalm 133 is a psalm of ascents. Uh, it was written by King David, who wrote more of the psalms than anyone else, although he was by no means their only author. Uh, and altogether, there are 15 psalms that fit into this category, uh, grouped from 120 to 134 near the end of the book. The group of psalms, the songs of the ascent, got their name because of the unique role they played in Jewish life during the time of the temple in Jerusalem. Jerusalem, if you didn't know, uh, is situated on a hill, and Jews, or it's very hilly, and Jews traveling to the city for one of their three major annual festivals traditionally sang these songs on their ascent uh, as they climbed the road to the city. So these are a group of songs uh, that are you know, used for encouragement and anticipation of celebration and feasting and gathering yet to come. And the structure of King David's little poem here is this. First, one declarative statement. How good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. 
and then that's followed by two similes that probably sound kind of odd to most of us. Simile number one, it, that is unity, is like precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down the collar of his robe. And then simile number two, it, again unity, is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion. For there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life evermore. And that seems kind of strange. What do these two liquids, oil and a beard and dew on a mountain, have to do with unity? It's at this point that I'd like to pause to reflect on what sort of scripture we are dealing with. Uh, the Bible contains a lot of literary styles. Uh, it's got history, law, prophecy, Jesus' parables, the apostles' teaching, uh, but this is none of those. And the reason that I point, <laughs> the reason that I point that out is why what I've got to say from here on out is mostly a reflection on a, a poem because that's what poetry invites us to do. Psalms probably more, excuse me, more than any other book is abstract in a way that invites us into a lifelong reading and rereading and reconsidering uh, and re-reflecting on what truths they reveal about our God. And so if you think I'm missing something from here on out, I guarantee you're right, and I would love to hear about it, although preferably after the service. <laughs> Here's how the psalm speaks to me and what I've learned about the context of some of the seemingly strange things that King David says in his poem. Uh, let's focus on that opening declarative statement first. How good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. Okay, that seems simple enough. Unity is good. Wait, is unity good? What kind of unity is good? The unity of God's people living together is good. Unity, uh, some might use the term solidarity or social capital, has become one of my favorite niche reading subjects over the last few years. Uh, everything from Timothy Carney's Alienated America or Pete Wainer's The Death of Politics uh, explores the causes and potential solutions for political division in the United States. Uh, likewise, Senator Scott's Unified and George Yancey's Beyond Racial Division have both challenged and encouraged me over the past year or two. Uh, there are enough people writing about disunity at the moment uh, to say that there's sort of a genre forming around the topic, and most of the books take at least some of their cues from Robert Putnam's Bowling Alone and the upswing in his examination of long-term trends of growing and declining social unity in the United States. Uh, there's a lot of hand-wringing right now uh, at the moment amongst some Christians, sometimes myself included, about declining trends of church membership in the United States. Disagreements about pandemic era policies, scandals of abuse, and racial and denominational and personal and political division uh, are all likely playing a role in the church's recent disunity. Uh, but it may be heartful uh, or heartening or helpful to understand that the church is not alone in experiencing uh, its declining membership at the moment. Uh, rather, this is happening alongside a much broader social trend, uh, which the graph might be hard to read, but essentially, after World War II, United States social unity at maximum, and then this only goes down to 2001, but it gets worse after that. Um, Putnam, in his book Bowling Alone, points out that unions, volunteer organizations, social clubs, and yes, bowling leagues are all suffering similar measurable declines paired with greater suspicion and declining social trust. 
The church, at least, is not alone in experiencing higher levels of disunity as compared with recent decades. That's real and lamentable. Uh, fear and suspicion of one's neighbors is just not a great way to live. Uh, but if we want to change this trend, and before we get too excited about unity just for its own sake, it's worth considering unity's dark side. Unity without regard to its character is not necessarily a good thing. Consider, for instance, the unity of Joseph's brothers when they sold him into slavery. Consider the unity of the Pharisees and the chief priests when they plotted to kill Jesus. Or for a more contemporary example, consider the unity of an invading army or an unethical corporate board. Unity can be terrifying because unity is an amplifier. Think of someone who is particularly evil or particularly good and then imagine them working together with a hundred more like-minded people. Unity by itself is powerful but morally neutral. Goodness or evil will both be amplified when groups of people choose to act together. And here is where the second part of the first verse of Psalm 133 becomes an important lens for me to interpret the rest of the whole psalm. David isn't telling us that unity in and of itself is wonderful. David is savoring a specific sort of unity, the wonderfulness of God's people living together. There is a distinctive character to the unity of God's people uh, from the unity of other groups, and David devotes the last two verses of his three-verse psalm here uh, to exploring the uniqueness of that goodness. Our unity, the unity of God's people, doesn't look like the unity of other groups. Our unity is meant to be good and pleasant in ways that set it apart. And the first way that the goodness of our, our unity is distinctive is that it is like the oil in someone's beard. That sounds weird to me. Uh, this is where some context is useful. The first, in the first of his two similes that David uses uh, to describe the goodness of God and godly unity, he references an earlier character from scripture. It is like precious oil poured on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard. Uh, yes, it's Aaron's beard that is the specific beard in question. Aaron, if you didn't know, was Moses' brother and Israel's first high priest. And wow, what a character. Uh, Aaron's record is really checkered. Uh, oh, I didn't rhyme that intentionally. Uh, as with so many of Israel's leader, leaders in the Old Testament, his behavior was sometimes deeply flawed. Uh, while Moses was receiving God's law and instructions for how to commune with God, it was Aaron who was down the hill leading the Israelites in their worship of the golden calf, an idol whom they credited, frustratingly, with rescuing them from Egypt. And it was Aaron who, exasperated at the people's grumbling, said, fine, ladies, give me your earrings. I'll just make a golden calf. I'm tired of arguing. But if we can choose to set aside Aaron's worst days uh, for the moment, Psalm 183 is really more focused on the moment when Aaron was anointed. At that point in Aaron's story, he had sort of gotten back on track. Uh, he had turned away from his idol-worshiping past, and he was now following God's instructions with great care. And the anointing of Aaron as Israel's first high priest was, uh, to use the theological term, a super big deal. A full chapter of the book of Exodus, chapter 28, 
is dedicated to describing just the wardrobe that Aaron was supposed to wear when he was anointed in super specific detail. It's got fabrics and thread colors and gemstones and precious metals, and it's all spelled out, and it all sounds very snazzy. Uh, and then the next two chapters of Exodus are dedicated to describing the ceremony in which he will be anointed uh, and the necessary accessories for the ceremony to take place until we get to chapter 30 of Exodus in which we find the recipe for Aaron's anointing oil. And it does sound pretty awesome. The oil is a blend of liquid myrrh, cinnamon, fragrant cane, cassia, and olive oil, and it is reserved exclusively for the anointing of priests. Aaron makes some serious mistakes between the moment when his brother Moses receives these instructions and the moment when he is anointed. But when, eventually, in Leviticus chapter 9, Aaron finally is anointed in a seven-day-long ceremony. He is acting in careful obedience to God. At the end of this anointing, Aaron appears to the people outside of the tent where it takes place, and the glory of the Lord appears to all the people. Fire leaps up from the altar, and the Israelites shout for joy and then fall down on their faces in awe. That moment of celebration and holiness, I believe, is what David is writing about in Psalm 133. David is saying that when God's people live together in unity, wonder and joy and reverence and holiness are all present at maximum intensity. That sounds pretty good. Okay, let's now check out the final verse of Psalm 133. We're about 15 minutes in here, so that's right on track with the schedule we keep in the, in the Sunday school hour. Two verses down, one to go. Uh, <laughs> David's second simile uh, that describes the nature of godly unity, uh, says, It is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion, for there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. This is even more obscure. The dew of Hermon is maybe not a familiar reference. Uh, as far as I can tell, this is the only time that it is mentioned in Scripture. Uh, in the 18th century, Charles Wesley tried to help us out. He wrote a sermon or a, a hymn about it, but alas, our worship team did not elect to play that one today. Uh, so we are left to wonder, what is this do and why is it so good? Fair questions. Now a quick geography lesson. Mount Hermon is a long mountainous ridge uh, that forms a portion of the border between present-day Lebanon and Syria and includes Syria's highest point. That's it up at the top, that long ridge. Uh, the ridge runs roughly north-south, because, and because of that orientation and its great height, it captures a significant amount of atmospheric moisture uh, in an otherwise arid region. This comes in the form of rainfall and snow and dew. The abundance of moisture at Mount Hermon while nearby lands were experiencing drought made it an unusually fertile place. Crops were better able to thrive and be fruitful. And when rain, or in this case, dew, shows up, beauty and nourishment follow. Even when it is surrounded by slopes, uh, or by dry land, the slopes of Mount Hermon have life. And David is imagining how wonderful it would be if the fruitfulness that miraculously showed up there were to show up on the relatively arid Mount Zion, the circle on the south. In Jerusalem, that would be cause for a serious celebration. So, with all that context, a paraphrase of Psalm 133 might sound something like this. The unity of God's people is really good when they're living together. 
It is like a celebration of holiness and perfume and fireworks all mixed together. It is like a surprise feast when you expected to have difficulty finding food. What's that mean for us? The Psalm of Ascents was used to encourage the people as they prepared themselves for worship and celebration. So how can it encourage us as we prepare for what God's up to next at Ninth and Maryland? Can you imagine singing this psalm to yourself on the way to church? I am extremely proud that my seven-year-old son Perrin has inherited a sickle family trait, which is singing out loud about whatever you're thinking about. Uh, he makes up little jingles all the time, and his version, which I have his permission to sing because it's from my imagination, not him, is, Dew of Herman and the beard oil, unity, oh yeah. <laughs> Seriously, though, what if we took David's words to heart? Now that we've made it past summer break, what if we all committed to a unity of purpose and spirit to begin this new academic year? What will we do first? Well, uh, sticking with Psalm 133, we might first uh, choose to pursue a goodness that was like the anointing of Aaron. The goodness that is fragrant and authentic in its attention to God wor God's word, we would humbly, humbly turn away from gold calves and idols of the cultures that surround us and attempt to claim our allegiance. We would seek a oneness with God and one another that reflects his unique character. The first century church struggled with unity in a lot of ways. It struggled to integrate Greek and Roman and Jewish believers into a single multi-ethnic community. It struggled to sort out which of their cultural practices were essential or permissible, uh, and which practices ultimately undermined the authenticity authenticity of their witness to the surrounding world. Uh, the early church also struggled to find theological unity and needed guidance to sort out the authentic gospel story from imposters and false teachers. In the letters to the churches, Paul, Timothy, Peter, and others were constantly guiding groups of believers away from worldliness or false teaching and toward an obedience to God's word that led to a distinctive, distinctive character behaviors, and holiness. The unity of God's people is distinctive. It's not quite like the transactional unity of a political party or the solidarity of a union. It's holy. It's set apart. It has its own purposes and logic and culture that is sometimes alarming to people on the outside, and that's okay. If we want to experience the unity of God's people living together that David wrote about in Psalm 133, I see I suggest that we would seek to distinguish ourselves from the other cultures that surround us in a joyful and celebratory way, and to encourage one another to pursue a uniqueness that's rooted in the word. Second, if we renewed our commitment to living out the unity of God's people, we'd be super fruitful. It would be as if the dew of Hermon suddenly started falling on Mount Zion. That is, our unity would lead to material blessings uh, in unexpected places. This is because God's people in unity are about the business of bearing fruit. We would bear the sort of fruit that guaranteed that no one among us was in need. We'd bear the sort of fruit that our neighbors would be drawn in to learn what we're about and to participate in the blessing that comes to a neighborhood from a unified church. What if our church really leaned into this idea this academic year? What could happen? With the upcoming change in our schedule, we have the opportunity to taste the unity that David is writing about 
a unity rooted in truth that bears fruit. So I'll ask what your plan is for October. Uh, will you make the time for a new hour of learning and discussion on Sunday mornings so that we can pursue this unity that David is telling us about? The elders and adult nurture and children's commission have been working for weeks behind the scene toward this. They are preparing a space and a time to learn from God's word and to challenge one another and to experience greater unity. Will you join us just a bit earlier on Sunday morning so that we can all enjoy the opportunity to sharpen one another, to check the stories and ideas that we pick up out in the world and then hold them up to the light of the word? It is wonderful to build one another up when we see the gospel reflected in each other's actions, and it is also good when we can gently correct one another when we see our brother and sister straying from the truth. It is attractive and distinctive and interesting when we come together to serve one another and our neighbors. Speaking of which, how can we be like the Dew of Hermon? That is, how can we bear fruit in this neighborhood? Well, next week we'll have a very unique opportunity to ask our neighbors all about that at the H Street Festival. Uh, and I really hope that every volunteer at the booth spends the day getting uh, greeting folks that, that don't know us yet in this community with curiosity about their hopes and dreams. Uh, and that we get to learn about how WCF can partner with them and invite them into a distinctive sort of closeness that we're pursuing here in this community. That closeness can only happen if we're investing in our lives together and when we do, David suggests that we will experience great joy and surprising fruitfulness. Because how good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. It is like precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down on the collar of his robe. It is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion, for there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life evermore. Amen.